everyone and welcome to Spark Leadership. I am Wendy Tepiso Maledu, a senior behavioral scientist at Coach Hub and the host of this show. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Kenneth Nowak on neuroleadership and sustaining high performance with psychological safety. Kenneth Nowak is a licensed psychologist and a co-founder of Invisia Learning. Ken received his doctorate degree in counseling psychology from the University of California, Los Angeles, and has published extensively in the areas of 360-degree feedback, assessment, health psychology, and behavioral medicine. Ken serves on Daniel Goldman's Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations and is a fellow of the American Psychological Association. I am so, so delighted to have you on the show. A warm, warm welcome to the show, Ken. Wendy, thank you very much. Thank you so much. So, Ken, one of the standing features of the show is that our guests share one interesting fact about themselves at the beginning, and we often wrap up with some future predictions. So, can you please share with our listeners one interesting fun fact about yourself? Yeah, well, the one fact actually ties into the theme of um, what I'll be speaking about today, that uh, my wife and I, for almost 20 years now, have been volunteers to raise service dogs for the blind and service dogs for uh, those four-legged creatures that go on to work with uh, individuals with post-traumatic stress or children on the autistic spectrum. And uh, we have raised hmm, 11 puppies, and we just turned one in during the COVID two-year period just uh, last December, and his journey will be actually to become a working service dog. But the guide dog uh, work we've been doing as volunteers is um, so germane to this idea of trust and psychological safety that if you're sight impaired or blind, uh, having a four-legged creature provide autonomy and independence and truly become your eyes is something that's been a great lesson for me. So one little fact that uh, not many people know about me. Thank you so much for sharing that. What a noble cause. I love the fact that it ties in with you know, what you're doing around psychological safety and around trust. Thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Thank you. So let's start our conversations today with definitions. And I know that, I mean, on the show, I often interview a lot of speakers around uh, leadership and different guests have shared their own perspective, their school of thoughts. So I'd like us to have your definition of leadership, but from a neuroscience perspective. Leadership is about creating a vision of a better tomorrow that will enhance people's quality of life and hopefully accomplish things that as a cohort, a group, a community, a tribe uh, would do what they want to do. So we look at neuroleadership really through the lens of um, our focus, the neuroscience focus around feeling safe, um, extending our in-groups and out-groups in a manner that uh, we feel as if we could collaborate and cooperate and uh, feeling a sense of interpersonal trust. Our brain, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, has primed us, obviously, to be socially connected. And that's how our brain has evolved. Um, and it's a survival mechanism that uh, we will be very uh, comfortable approaching people that are similar to us. And I use that word similar that uh, could be defined in any way, shape, or form. But uh, our bent is really that uh, every aspect of all the outcomes that leaders accomplish, retaining high talent, engaging uh, employees, creating a, 
uh, culture and community where people can psychologically be healthy all really revolve around this concept of psychological safety and trust. And I think if uh, our listeners today can picture um, a pair of binoculars or a Venn diagram or two circles that overlap, um, where they overlap, I would just place the word trust. And from a neurobiological perspective, um, both psychological safety and interpersonal trust really have the same neural underpinnings. But let me define those two words because I'll be using them quite a bit um, today with you. And I want to make sure our listeners really get an appreciation for the subtle but important differences. So the word psychological safety has become in vogue, um, certainly in reference to teams and how we interact with another human being or a group. Uh, again, we can go back evolutionary to the tribe that we're in. And I want to uh, define psychological safety as the extent to which I believe you will give me a break in how I behave. And what that really does is provide me the liberty to assert myself, to challenge, to take a risk, uh, even make a mistake in front of you, uh, but to have a voice. So it's a very active uh, set of behaviors on your part uh, when you're with another human being or with a team or with a group that provides the freedom to allow you to be yourself, to be authentic, to be candid, uh, to be um, caring about wanting to express your point of view. And the other side of that Venn diagram, um, I would use the word interpersonal trust. And this is a bit more passive, but this is the extent to which I will empower you and give you um, the power to do things on my behalf. So if I have an electrical problem at my home, I'm going to find the very best electrician to come in with great uh, qualities and skills and a reputation. And I empower you to come into my house and repair what's broken. If you're a surgeon, the same thing. I'm going to go find the best quality surgeon to replace my knee and feel very comfortable. But again, it's more passive. I'm believing that you have the competence, the skill, the reputation, the excellence to do something on my behalf. And again, psychological safety is much more of an active uh, set of behaviors on your part. Interpersonal trust is the empowerment of another person doing things on our behalf. So I hope that'll be helpful as a clarity of uh, these two words that I'll be using quite a bit today. Happiness. I like some of the key things there, um, the difference, right? I believe you give me a break or you're allowing me to challenge, to take a risk. And that's sitting in the basket of psychological safety. And the other one, you know, the interpersonal trust is sitting more on the empowering the other person to do something for you. So that for me is quite interesting. But you also then said what overlaps there in the binocular um, analogy that you used is the trust. How does this fit in into these two concepts then? Yeah, so from a neurobiological perspective, I'll uh, again, let me unpack first psychological safety. So if you think about um, the freedom to speak out, the freedom to challenge, the freedom to uh, share in a candid way with a team or a team member, uh, I have to feel safe. And the neurobiology behind this is quite interesting. It really comes out of uh, research work here in California uh, by a research lab at the University of California, Los Angeles. And the core researcher was Naomi Eisenberger. And about uh, 15 years ago, she used a very interesting protocol on uh, a game called Cyberball. And she would take um, three or four, they were students, and uh, students will do anything if you <laughs> reimburse them and pay them, to come into her lab 
And she explained that what I want to do is actually take a picture of your brain while you're playing a game with each other. And it's a common game uh, called cyberball or toss the ball with each other. And she explained to uh, these two or three or four students that um, I'm going to take you one at a time into uh, a different room. I'll give you a keyboard. I'll put a, a portable fMRI um, thing on your head that would measure, again, uh, blood flow. And you'll be playing this uh, ball toss game with the two or three other people that you've just met. But unbeknownst to the students, uh, they're really not playing a game with the other two or three people they met. They're playing a game against a computer. And the way the game uh, starts is very simple. Um, it looks as if I'm passing the ball to Wendy, and it looks like Wendy's passing the ball to Betty, and Betty's passing the ball to James, and then it comes back to me. And that continues for a few minutes. And then Naomi's able to actually change the game um, electronically that um, I get excluded. So I pass the ball to you, and you pass the ball to, again, uh, another individual, they pass it to James. And instead of James passing it back to me, which I expected, uh, James passes the ball to you, and I've now been eliminated from this game. So that's the protocol of Cyberball. And uh, again, not surprisingly, when Naomi asked all of the individuals in the original study, uh, what happened and how do you feel about it? 100% were puzzled to frustrated that maybe I did something wrong or incorrect. Um, but I felt sad that um, I was eliminated, I was rejected. So that's not very surprising. That um, happens every day. Anytime we're in a meeting with a, a business colleague and we've got a great idea, right? And we, we shout it out and, and Wendy goes, well, we did that uh, four years ago before COVID and that didn't work well. So I go back and slither back down on my desk and I'm quiet for the rest of the meeting. And an hour later, somebody else in the room will come up with uh, virtually the same idea and everyone's applauding. So again, I wander out of this meeting feeling as if my ideas were rejected. But what Naomi was uh, able to find for the very first time in using functional magnetic imagery, the ability to uh, look at blood flow and activity of the brain, is that when these students felt a sense of rejection, when they felt they were being treated unfairly, she found the activated areas of the brain uh, were corresponding to the pain matrix. So when we have a broken heart, when we feel as if we've been treated unfairly, when we feel as if we've been given feedback that's inaccurate, or when we feel bullied, we are actually activating the pain matrix in our brain. So this is protective from an evolutionary perspective. But again, if I'm in a team situation, if I'm with a life partner, and I just don't feel psychologically safe, I'm going to be inhibited because I don't believe you're going to act on my behalf in a caring, benevolent, civil, civil way, and therefore it's preventing this actual pain matrix. So the neurobiology of psychological safety is really rooted in our survival brain uh, that we have, and we call this a negativity bias, that our survival mechanism uh, through thousands and thousands and thousands of years is to work really hard to avoid hurt and pain and it's actually much more powerful as a grab than it is to seek pleasure. So the roots of psychological safety um, are very much rooted in this um, way our brain works to survive. And when we feel with another individual that, um, gosh, they may beat us up, um, not physically, but emotionally, or they may be evaluative and judgmental, or have a bias that uh, really limits my ability to be treated in an equitable manner, 
um, I'm not going to feel safe. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to be really to provide my input in a manner that's very valuable. So that's the science, interestingly, around psychological safety. And I could share a few. I want to ask another question, the science, the neuroscience around interpersonal trust. Again, sort of same mechanisms of the brain, but a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. I am just like sitting in the library and enjoying this. <laughs> this is so insightful. And, and and I'm thinking about it in a practical way, also just being in context. Like, I mean, the way you're putting it in meetings, how many of us experience this trigger? So, I mean, is there a relationship between how we then respond when we feel rejected or eliminated, this whole pain matrix? Is there a relationship somehow in the brain? Yeah, there really is. Yeah, it definitely shuts us down. And that's the behaviors that we observe interacting with others. We'll avoid conflict. We'll be less um, willing to risk sharing a candid point of view. We're less assertive in asking for what we need and want because we have a belief, however accurate it is, that um, I'm not going to be listened to. I'm not going to be valued. And we find this, again, whether it's um, across um, biases of age and gender and culture and skin color, uh, that feeling safe with those that are different from us automatically triggers this cautionary survival mechanism of uh, what we need to do to be careful. Again, seeking to avoid pain is much more powerful than just engaging with you and trusting that you're a safe person to be with. So here's the other side of the um, biology that's very fascinating. Let me describe a little bit about um, the other side of the binocular, the other side of the Venn diagram uh, related to interpersonal trust. So that we have known for a long time there's an evolutionary peptide that we have strongly felt was uh, related to the female reproduction um, system called oxytocin. And oxytocin is released um, when we interact with another individual, and it's a signaling molecule, a peptide, if you will, uh, that lowers our anxiety about dealing with others. And it's released through a number of uh, interpersonal interactions. Uh, But this hormone, oxytocin, was identified um, over 20 years ago with a colleague of ours who is a professor at Claremont University here in Los Angeles. And his name is Paul Zak, Z-A-K. And Paul's lab was one of the first uh, out of many around the world to demonstrate that um, uh, this particular peptide, oxytocin, and only oxytocin, is uh, facilitating trust in another individual and also empathy. And he used um, a very interesting protocol that um, there's a lot of variations of this. It's called the trust game. And what Paul's lab did 20 years ago was he would bring, again, students that he would pay Uh, to begin these studies with, into his lab. And they would play an economic game in which um, each individual was given real money. It could be euros, it could be dollars, it could be anything, any currency in your particular culture and country. And they were told that um, they would interact only via a computer. And the way this economic game works is that uh, I'm instructed to um, decide if I want to give you some money out of what I have, it would be then multiplied by some value. And then you can make a decision once you receive that money on your computer, whether or not you want to compensate and reimburse and distribute back to me some of your winnings. So it's an interesting protocol. So in the ideal situation, let's just pretend we start uh, each with 50 euro. 
and let's pretend again it's uh, doubled. So if I gave you all of my money, 50 euro, and it's doubled, um, you start with 50 euro as well, you would now wind up with 200 euro, and I would wind up with nothing. And your decision is, do you walk out of the lab, or do you in fact share some or all of your winnings back with me? So in an economic model of win-win, obviously what would be the best thing is you and I collaborate with each other. I give you all my money, it's multiplied by a factor, and you then take your 200 euro and give me half of your winnings, and we both would walk out of the lab with 100 euro, which has doubled what we were given to begin with. So that's the protocol that Paul started uh, with his lab and all other labs around the world uh, 20 years ago. And at the very beginning of the experiment, he would draw blood. And at the very end of the experiment, he would draw blood. And what he was looking for is what change would occur in this interaction, and this happened to be an economic uh, interaction with currency, uh, but to what extent would there be any change whatsoever in anything in the blood uh, when you received money from me? And what Paul's lab was able to identify is the only peptide that changed was the peptide called oxytocin. And the more money I gave you, there was a greater increase in your blood of oxytocin. So this idea of feed forward uh, caused, my behavior caused an increase in oxytocin that signaled to you to be more collaborative, more cooperative, and to trust me, and to in fact reciprocate by providing me with um, some of your winnings. So this has gone on for 20 years, and there's quite a bit of uh, nuances with oxytocin. And again, from a female reproductive uh, perspective, it's used to uh, enhance uterine contractions during birth or to produce um, the mammary glands to generate milk if you're breastfeeding a child. But men and women also release oxytocin. Women release quite a bit more. Men actually, um, particularly under stress, produce something called testosterone. I think we've all heard of that. And testosterone and oxytocin actually park, if I can use that uh, metaphor, uh, in the same receptor sites in the brain. And testosterone in men actually blocks this collaborative, cooperative uh, behavior that we find with women. So the biological underpinnings of interpersonal trust is a release of oxytocin. But today we look at what leaders do. What are the practices, what are the behaviors that are expressed and demonstrated that signal to another human being, uh, you're trustworthy? So that's where we've gone with our research, but that's the biology behind psychological safety and the neurobiology behind interpersonal trust. Wow, I hope everyone is enjoying this conversation as much as I am. It has been absolutely fascinating for me to learn about the neuroscience behind psychological safety and trust. Thanks for sticking around with us so far. Now that we know the science, I wanted to shift from theory to some practical application. I asked Ken to elaborate on the benefits of creating the atmosphere of trust and psychological safety within organizations. Our research and others is pretty clear that um, we can actually differentiate very specific outcomes based on whether or not there's a perception of feeling safe, expressing myself, being authentic, and more to the point, having leaders that treat us in a civil, caring, 
an investing way. And maybe if there's been anything with uh, all the horrors in the world today, and uh, certainly with COVID, uh, we're seeing again individuals redefine the meaningfulness of work and the relationship that work has in their life. But I think the gift is um, when we have challenge, when we have adversity in our life, it gives us a chance to look in the mirror to say, what's important? Um, do I want to work a thousand hours uh, each week? Do I want to be treated in a manner which I perceive I'm not being um, equitably considered, I'm not being treated in a fair way, I feel bullied? So I think it shifted our attention to um, you know, what cultures need to do to keep good talent today, because the best of the best have always been free agents. They could decide to leave. And today, um, if you're really good, we can walk away from any high-paying job, any great company to decide to go somewhere else. So a trick is um, how do companies retain really high potential, high-performing talent? How do we garner um, engagement that people love, not the company? My dad's story is um, one I'll be very brief about, but my father um, escaped from Nazi Germany, was actually hidden in France for three years um, before he was uh, able to escape and wind up in an orphanage, never to see his uh, family again in San Francisco, California. And when he was about 17, a company came to that orphanage and offered my dad a job. And he offered um, a job with a psychological contract that's very unique today. And that contract was work hard for us, stay with us, and we promise you to the day that um, you want to decide to retire, you'll always be treated fairly. You'll always have a position that um, will respect you. And to my father, he stayed with one company for 37 years. And it was a very benevolent, caring company. Uh, it still exists today. It's called Levi Strauss. But the point I want to make is today's world of work is very different. The career paradigm of job security is now being replaced with employability security. What do I need to do to have the right skills, experience, and network to decide where I want to go? So in our research and others, to um, get back to your question, we actually have data that suggests that in high-trust, high-psychologically-safe cultures, we see a tremendous increase in retention of high-potential employees. We see less reported job burnout. We see greater uh, measures of employee engagement, less sickness, and uh, we don't have really direct measures. Productivity and performance is quite different, obviously, in every industry, but we do find people more engaged with the work that they're doing. So we simply believe that there's a competitive advantages to promote and hire and cultivate uh, leaders that possess not just technical expertise, but also possess emotional and social competence that can create an environment where employees today can belong and flourish in a manner that uh, protects their psychological health and well-being. Mm. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that story as well. I think it's bringing it closer home, right, that it is possible to create that psychological safety and retain people for longer. So as a leader who's listening to this conversation out there and is like, what can I do to create a safe culture in my organization? What are some of the practical ways that you can share with our leaders today? Yeah, let me mention just a couple. We've actually identified in our research and in the lab eight leadership practices that, again, are observable, they're demonstrable, that we can actually measure in leaders um, that develop um, the currency of releasing oxytocin. 
So again, go back to the neurobiology that I've mentioned, that if you treat me in a manner that sends me a signal that um, you care about me and that you're willing to trust me, I'm going to reciprocate. I'm going to collaborate. So one of these we've known about for a long time, and in fact, uh, for 50 years, we all can resonate with the idea that um, if we'll invest uh, in another human being, be a mentor, be a coach, to provide feedback in a manner that's helpful rather than evaluative or, or busting people down, um, we find it builds rapport. We find that people are attracted to those that will invest in us. So one of the behaviors that we see with leaders that um, create high trust, psychologically strong cultures is to do two things. I'll share two concrete behaviors that um, listeners tomorrow could uh, actually deploy. And one of those is to conduct um, what we call, um, and my colleague Beverly Kay, who's a career guru here in the United States, has labeled a stay interview. And it's very different from the exit interviews that all companies uh, often use when people depart. If you leave the company, Wendy, I might bring you in confidentially and say, hey, can you tell me really what it was like? Why did you leave? And you'll share some insights. But Beverly and others have actually found that if I'll bring an employee in that's high potential and high performing, and I say, hey, Wendy, I, I can't change your salary today. I can't modify what's going on uh, too much in the company, but I want to thank you for your hard work. I want to express my uh, value of what you bring to the team. And I want to ask you, what can I do as a leader to make sure 12 months from today, you stay here, you stay with us, you'll be committed and just listen. And that investment of, again, a communication, um, we've actually found will release oxytocin. It's showing somebody that I value them, that they're um, a cog in a, in a big wheel that uh, plays a role that you may feel at the end of the day, um, I haven't made much progress. So just by conducting a, a very brief stay interview, separating that from, uh, again, the agenda, the projects, the tasks, the assignments, the key performance indicators that you and I have uh, talked about is enough for you to walk away from that interaction and say, you know, Ken's really pretty special. The fact that he would ask about um, what's important to me and what he can do, that means a lot to me. So we're bridging again a relationship. The neurobiology is oxytocin release. The other comes out of uh, research in positive psychology. And again, it's this idea of investing in talent, investing in people that um, are strong. And it comes out of research from Marty Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, in which he's got um, peer-reviewed um, published studies that show that when I can ask you to define and deploy the intersection of what you're passionate about and what you're skilled about, that Marty calls our signature strengths, we find that it actually has a clinical um, advantage of reducing any kind of depression and bolstering psychological well-being. So the translation is if I'm a boss and I will sit down with you and again, separate a separate uh, interaction and meeting to say, Wendy, what is it that you love doing and you feel like you do really well and I'll validate that. And how can we together explore how we can best use your talents? So again, that discussion, that plan results in you uh, leaving the interaction we have, whether it's a Zoom meeting or a live meeting saying, I love working for Ken. He's really interested in my signature strengths. And again, if we can implement um, you actually deploying what you do well and what you love, it translates, again, the neurobiology of releasing oxytocin, but enhances your engagement, 
and uh, your willingness to work. So that's one area, just as an example, that goes back to the science of psychological safety and trust and built around, again, the sense of uh, the signaling molecule, the pro-social molecule, oxytocin, that leaders can do pretty simply. So those are two very concrete meetings you can have um, that are very short, very specific, that uh, lead to very, very positive outcomes. This is great food for thought, for transformation. I think what I also like with one of the behaviors there, one of the underpinning things that you mentioned was listen, listening. And I often you know, say that the, the, one of the gifts of coaching is that the coach gives you the gift of listening, right? It's just like packaged so nicely because then you feel valued as the other person is listening to you. So that is so profound that just... That stay interview, the purpose, your role as a leader is to listen. And then you talk about just the signature strength, working on people's strength. And you said the key word, be interested, because it's about finding out, right? Oh, they are just crispy nuggets that you're dropping in this conversation. But um, unfortunately, because of time, we kind of just need to wrap up this conversation. So at the end of the show, as I said, we often wrap up our conversations with some future predictions. And I'd like you to just share two, you know, or three things looking into the future. What do you think then Um you know, it's the impact of psychological safety in organizations in five years' time, in 10 years' time. What does it look like? Just share some predictions for us there. Yeah, great question. I wish I had that crystal ball to tell you what uh, lottery numbers would uh, really make all of us wealthy and maybe not any happier, but certainly wealthier. Well, one of the things I, I will say really rapidly is that uh, we don't know what we don't know. And neuroscience um, is young in its infancy. And um, what we know from replicability studies, Brian Nosek at the University of Virginia has led a, a large consortium that's repeated 100 of the more popular psychological studies in the last uh, 100 years. And they found out that about only 37% of the studies that uh, showed positive results, they were able to replicate. And there's great debate as to why. But the point I want to make is uh, what I'm telling you today will change. Science evolves. Uh, what we believe uh, strongly is um, going to evolve. And the other thing I'll say is a lot of our neuroscience research has been based on uh, very specific methodologies. And I've used examples with functional MRI, fMRI. And uh, these, again, are in its infancy. So I think, again, we'll, we'll be learning more over the next 5, 10, 15 years as technology of peering into the brain while you and I are interacting on a podcast uh, would be really exciting. And even Elon Musk, I don't know if uh, many of you have been following his brain technology called Neuralink, but a direct physiological link into the brain where we can think a thought and it can actually translate. And there's been a lot of work in the rehab community with people that have paralysis um, or have muscular or neurological uh, impingements and the, the ability to not move a mouse, but to think of a letter in your mind being translated to that actually being typed into a machine. So I think in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, like we have with um, self-driving automobiles, there'll be technology where we won't need a mouse. Um, we won't need an Alexa or these devices where we talk, we just think. And that translation of neural activity will be um, translated to how things work. 
And finally, the last thing I'll say is in coaching in particular, we're learning at the cutting edge uh, research in one of our special issues on neuroscience by uh, Richard Boyatzitz has given us some insight using fMRI that there are some techniques of coaching that actually grease the sled of building more rapport, building more motivation to want to set goals, and feeling more um, of a sense of confidence. And uh, Richard's work is one that's worth looking at, but for the first time, we're seeing a link between therapy, coaching, and helping, and what actually translates into the brain level of being willing to accept feedback, uh, being interested to say, I, I really need to work on this, rather than being defensive. And a key, as you mentioned, is the ability to tune in. And it's always been one of those therapeutic uh, tools that every good helper, it could be a, a, a life partner to a licensed clinical uh, helper and uh, allied health really utilizes. So I don't know, that's on my uh, future board of where we'll be going. And obviously the entire area of artificial intelligence, uh, how that intersects with coaching will be very interesting to see whether the human touch or a bot <laughs> will actually have the same results. So stay tuned. Yay, I love that. Stay tuned indeed. Thank you so much, Ken, for your time. Thank you for your wisdom, your insights. Thank you, thank you. It's been a delight to have this conversation with you. Privilege to be here today. Thank you, Wendy. This has been a truly fascinating conversation. I loved learning about the neuroscience of leadership and how this research informs us about why creating psychological safety and trust in organizations is so important. If you like what you've heard and want to explore more, head on over to coachhub.com to learn how we democratize coaching across all career levels. And if you're listening to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other streaming platform, please give us a rating and leave a comment. Thanks everyone for listening. Join me on our next episode as I speak with the author, executive advisor and coach Whitney Johnson, the founder and host of Disrupt Yourself podcast. We'll discuss her latest book, Smart Growth some of the science behind the personal development and how organizations can cultivate a culture of learning and growth. I hope you join me for our conversation. From everyone at Coach Hub Studios, have a wonderful day. Happiness.